You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. and welcome to History of the Great War episode 180. This week, a big thank you goes out to Kathleen and Matt for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all the main episodes or special Patreon-only episodes for $5 a month. If that sounds interesting, head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to check it out. Last episode, we talked about the beginning of the influenza pandemic of 1918. This episode, we will follow the pandemic to its end, with discussions about how the virus evolved over time, how scientists and physicians all around the world tried to fight back against it. And then in the second half of this episode, we will spend some time looking at the effects of the influenza pandemic around the globe. It would be a truly worldwide crisis. The scale of the problem in the civilian world was unprecedented, with many times more civilians being killed during the pandemic than deaths experienced by the military. One of the interesting effects of this podcast over the years has been people reaching out to me to tell me about how the war touched their families. This has also been true about the influenza pandemic. After the last episode, I've had several people reach out to me about how their family was affected by the pandemic, often by a family member dying. Often these stories just prove the reach of the pandemic and how pervasive it was around the world. Unlike the war that had come before, the destruction of the disease was not limited to the battlefields of Europe or to those directly involved in the fighting, but instead it touched every area around the globe in its own deadly way. In general, when there is an epidemic, there are certain groups in society that are more vulnerable than others. Almost always at the top of the list are the very young and the very old. There are what I think pretty obvious reasons for this. These groups just aren't less physically able to fight off the sickness. However, with the influenza of 1918, and especially during the second and third waves of the pandemic, things were quite different. 
Instead of seeing the greatest rates of mortality on both ends of the age spectrum in a big dip through the middle, one of the highest peaks of mortality was actually in that middle range, in healthy young people who should have been best positioned to survive. At the time, the reason for this phenomenon was not known, but later researchers were, would determine that many of those deaths among young people were due to something called Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, or ARDS. This condition was present not due to the severity of the influenza, but instead due to the strength of the response from the victim's immune system. During this response, the victim's lungs would become filled with fluid, which would then interact with pneumonia to permanently damage lung tissue, often resulting in death. This would not be the case for all fatal cases of the flu, but for many of the young people who died from the disease, it is likely the reason. There were other very vulnerable segments of society as well, and one that stands out was pregnant women, which I also think is, is pretty understandable. While the influenza was sweeping the world in late 1918 and early 1919, for many countries there was still strong censorship of the press that had been put in place during the course of the war. As we discussed last week, this caused many to believe that the pandemic had begun in Spain, which was unfortunate for the Spanish, but it had far more negative consequences when it came to how people viewed the pandemic and how they tried to prevent themselves from getting sick. The biggest problem was that for many people, seeing all of the sickness around them, but then not seeing the situation reflected in the newspapers, caused them to lose trust not just in those newspapers, but also official reports or recommendation. This distrust caused many to disregard information about how to reduce their risk of exposure and how to help those who contracted it, because that information was surrounded by reports that did not conform in any way with what they were seeing around them in the world. This was a mistake for which the governments of those countries should bear almost the entirety of the blame. It was a choice with drastic negative consequences that was made to hide the truth of the problems from the citizens of their countries, and to save face and prevent the need to fully admit how bad the situation was. While the governments of the world were not necessarily handling the situation as well as they could have, doctors around the world were scrambling to try and figure out how to combat the influenza that was sweeping the globe. Across the world, doctors in all countries were trying all kinds of treatments to try and make patients better. These can be broken down into two different approaches, either therapeutic or active, and we're just going to focus on that second category for just a moment. But even in that category, there were many different treatments that were attempted. There were some attempts at using quinine and its associated medicines, none of which were successful. One physician would give hydrogen peroxide intravenously, uh, and of the 25 patients of that treatment, only 12 would die, which I guess was a success. In Greece, one doctor would use mustard plasters to create blisters on the patient's skin, and then drain those blisters, and then take the liquid from them and mix it with morphine and caffeine, and then re-inject it into the patient. The doctor would record that, quote, the effect was apparent at once, and in 36 to 48, or even 12 hours, the temperature declined and improvement progressed. An Italian doctor would inject mercuric chloride. Another would use warm milk enemas every 12 hours for every year of age of the patient. All of these tests were entirely experimental. And in many, any result was considered a success, even though it was impossible to know if it actually changed the mortality rate because nobody really knew what the exact mortality rate was. And it varied from place to place anyway. The examples I just mentioned, and countless other treatments around the world, were mostly just the medical community throwing everything at the wall to see if anything stuck. 
There was one thing that everyone knew would work if it could be developed, and that was a vaccine, but creating one was proving to be much more problematic than initially hoped. Almost immediately after the epidemic began to spread around the United States military bases in the spring of 1918, scientists were at work on a vaccine. Vaccines were well known at this point in history, and had already been used against several other ailments that had previously been very deadly. After a lot of work, there was a vaccine created for the newest pandemic, and it was distributed in very large quantities. For example, 2 million doses were given to the personnel of the United States military in early November. However, there was a problem. By that point, the disease had mostly run its course, meaning that the vaccine was already too late, and it only protected against a few types of pneumonia that the influenza was known to cause. It did not actually prevent the spread of the influenza itself. Since it came uh, out around the same time that the pandemic was already winding down in many places of the world, the vaccine was not as successful as was hoped. And even if it had been 100% successful, and it would have come months earlier, it probably would not have been able to be produced in the large enough quantities to make an appreciable dent in the spread of the pandemic. By late November 1918, the second wave of the pandemic, which had begun just a few months earlier and had then proceeded to circle the globe, was running out of steam. However, right around the end of this trip, it would mutate and begin the entire process anew with what is known as the third wave. This third wave did not mutate too much from the second wave, and this meant that many people who had been sick from the second wave and who had survived had a pretty good chance of not getting sick again. This, along with other factors about how and where this third wave traveled, meant that it would not be as impactful and it would not kill as many people. That's not to say that things were not bad, and it was still just as lethal to those who caught it as the second wave had been, just less people became sick this time. In some places, the third wave was actually worse, like in some areas of the United States and Australia. Another change in this wave was that press censorship began to wane as countries all over the world went from a wartime stance to a peacetime stance. This meant that many newspapers were once again writing whatever they wanted, and in many places this meant horror stories about the pandemic. One individual who you may have heard of by the name of President Wilson is now believed to have contracted this third wave of the influenza. There is evidence that he would contract the disease in Paris and that it was a contributing factor for the stroke that he would eventually suffer, an event that would have ramifications for post-war America that, don't worry, we'll get into later. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. 
Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. So we've now reached the point of this episode where we're going to sort of just take a trip around the world to talk about the spread of the influenza around the globe. We will start in the United States and then just sort of go from there. In the United States, the government organization primarily responsible for handling the pandemic was the United States Health Service, but they were not ready to deal with such a huge problem. Like every other national health organization around the globe, or really any health organization, not just national ones, they would soon find themselves having to deal with a problem that they had never properly prepared for. I'm sure that there had been discussions about what to do in case of a large pandemic, but such a huge spike in requirements of what was needed to be done meant that resources simply were not available. On September 11th, federal officials did tell reporters that they feared that the, the Spanish flu had arrived in the United States, and this would be the second wave of the pandemic, not the first wave that the Americans had originally sent to Europe, a fact that they never really mentioned. While there was concern at the time of this announcement that the flu would move around the country, it did not prevent the normal functionings of government, including a new wave of draft registrations that would happen the next day, where over 13 million men from all over the world would have to register for the next round of the draft. I, you know, I'm not an expert here, um, but if I was concerned about a pandemic spreading around a country, I know the exact thing that I would want to happen is for 13 million people from all over the country to show up in public offices on a single day to fill out some paperwork. That probably wouldn't be what I would want to happen. It would be about a month after the announcement in September 11th that the pandemic would reach its peak in the American military, and then at the beginning of November it started to ramp up in the public sector. Cities all over the country had no idea what to do, and even if they did, they would not have had the resources to do it. Let's take a look at just one of those American cities, Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, hundreds of thousands of people would be sick from the pandemic, and hospitals all over the city began to rapidly fill to capacity. One citizen would say that her neighbors went, quote, to the closest hospital, the Pennsylvania Hospital at 5th and Lombard, but when they got there, there were lines and no doctors available and no medicine available, so they went home, those that were strong enough anyway. The hospitals had to adopt a policy of only accepting new patients who came with an explicit order from a doctor or from the police. One of the biggest problems for these hospitals was the lack of trained medical personnel. Many doctors and nurses were away with the army, and those that remained behind had already been stricken down with the influenza. At Pennsylvania General Hospital, 43% of the staff required hospitalization. Even though the hospitals were bursting at the seams, and even though there were not enough doctors to treat those that were already admitted, people kept showing up, hoping to get in and receive treatment. When this was not possible, they would just have to go home, a situation that would cause serious fear to fall over the city. All around people, family members, friends, and neighbors were dying, often in pain, and there was nothing anyone could do, and there was no hope of help from others. It was truly terrifying. Unfortunately, Philadelphia was not an exception, and all over the world similar events were happening in cities of all kinds of countries. Across the Pacific Ocean, both Japan and New Zealand would reach the peak of their epidemics in November. In New Zealand, the officially recommended treatment was for the patient to inhale an atomized spray of 2% zinc sulfate, which was something like cold medicine. 
Because of this, many people believed that the influenza was nothing more than a common cold. And so, of course, when people with a common cold still have to go to work, they go. And this would just spread the influenza around the workplace. In New Zealand, the government forbid the newspapers from ever printing anything even resembling mortality statistics, with the hope that this would reduce panic, but instead, it just increased it. This was a mistake that many governments around the world would make both during the war and after. The belief that if newspapers did not publish actual statistics, that it would reduce the panic of the populace, when in fact it often had the opposite effect. The public imagination would inflate the true numbers many times, and with each increase, fear and doubt would increase as well. The overall mortality rate in the country was 5.8 per thousand for European New Zealanders, but seven times higher for the Maui New Zealanders. In Japan, the officially recommended treatment was to wear gauze masks, and in some towns, people were forbidden to go into public places without those masks. The government also told people to gargle specific liquids, the efficacy of which was very doubtful, but it gave people something to do that made them believe they were helping, which is good for morale. The Japanese officials were also incredibly strict at keeping sick people confined to their homes on bed rest. The mortality rate of the country would be 4.5 per thousand. The pandemic would also sweep through China, although records on its effects are harder to obtain. There was a lot of turmoil in the country both during the war and immediately after, which makes accurate medical records often non-existent. One thing that we know pretty sure, is, and it actually helped China in this case when compared to other countries, was that overall mobility in the interior was actually quite low. People just did not move around very much. And this meant that while the cities and ports were hit hard by the pandemic, it did not uh, become pervasive in the interior of the country. In Australia, they attempted to quarantine the entire country, with an order in October for quarantine procedures to be enacted at all ports, but by that point it was mostly too late. Over a third of the total population of Sydney would be sick at one point or another, but the mortality rate in the city would actually be quite low. Now, one possible explanation for this was that the pandemic hit Australia quite early, during the summer, and not during the autumn when it was the most deadly. In Britain, the deadliest period would be in the autumn during the second wave, when over two-thirds of the fatalities in the country occurred. The superintendent of one London hospital would say, quote, Not only was there a general increase in cases, many critically ill from influenza pneumonia, but the staff also began to go down like nine pins. In France, they had similar problems, a huge shortage of civilian doctors because so many were away with the army. But in France, it was far worse than in Britain or even in Germany. In France, there was one doctor for every 10,000 civilians at the end of the war, due to just how many had been sent away with the army. Whereas in Britain, those numbers were closer to like one in every 2,500. While this greatly reduced the number of people who could be treated in French hospitals, the actual effect on civilian mortality is hard to determine, since there were so few effective treatments. However, it did nothing to raise civilian morale, which was greatly hampered by how difficult it was to find proper medical treatment. While the situation was very bad in many of the countries that we have discussed, in many ways the people in those countries had it better than a lot of other places. In other areas of the world, especially in areas where immune systems were not as developed in certain ways, the situation was far, far worse. For example, in the African country of Gambia, only 8% of Europeans died, but in the interior, entire villages of African natives would be killed. 
One British visitor would later say that, quote, I found whole villages of 300 to 400 families completely wiped out, the houses having fallen in on the unburied dead and the jungle having crept in within two months, obliterating whole settlements. In the Indian army, Indian troops would suffer mortality rates three times that of the British soldiers in the same units. In India itself, there were stories of trains leaving one station and arriving days later at another full of dead and dying victims. It's possible that 20 million people died in India alone, but getting an exact number is impossible. The difficulty of determining accurate numbers makes it almost impossible to determine how many people got sick and died from the pandemic around the world. Even in more highly structured countries, there were, for many reasons, not very good records. For example, in the United States, only 24 states kept accurate records of those who fell ill. In many places like Africa, we have no records at all, while in places like Russia, Eastern Europe, and China, all dealing with civil wars or internal strife, records are very spotty. Due to the huge gaps in the historical record, the number of how many people died from the pandemic has changed greatly over the last century. In 1927, one of the first major studies estimated the total deaths at 21 million, and since that date the estimates have only increased. By 1940, the estimate was between 40 and 100 million, and that number still mostly sticks today, with the bottom end of that estimate generally being not quite so low, maybe at around 50 million being the low estimate you will find in most studies these days. Even at the low end of that estimate, though, it's almost impossible to properly contextualize. Remember that the total deaths from the war were only 20 million, and this could be as much as five times that number. That's just staggering especially since the pandemic could hit anyone, anywhere, almost at any time. It did not matter what you did, where you lived, you got sick, and you could die. A truly terrifying thought. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, next week will be the first of two where we will have special Patreon preview episodes of Trench Raids and Neutral Spain. Uh, and then after that, we'll come back and we'll start talking about Versailles. Yes, there are two Patreon preview episodes, mostly because Versailles is huge and I'm a little behind schedule in getting that going. So I hope you enjoy those two preview episodes. Have a wonderful week.